Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. First, we'll begin with a poem about spring. Here is Kwame Dawes with his poem, Purple. My name is Kwame Dawes. I'm going to read a poem called Purple for my daughter, Equa. Purple for Equa. Walking, I drew my hand over the lumpy bloom of a spray of purple. I stripped away my fingers, stained purple, put it to my nose the minty honey, a perfume so aggressively pleasant. I gave it to you to smell, my daughter, and you pulled away as if I was giving you a palm full of wasps, deceptions. Smell the way the air changes because of purple and green. This is the promise I make to you. I will never give you a fist full of wasps, just the surprise of purple and the scent of rain. Thank you, Kwame Dawes and the Academy of American Poets. And next on Arts Express. Carolyn Paulinus was murdered last night. Some creep got into her place somehow and strangled her. It looks like she was raped. Rusty, I want you to handle this case personally. You're the only one around here I can trust. Just catch me a bad guy. He's dead. And you're still obsessing. You were in Carolyn's apartment the night she was killed. We've got the fingerprint results. There's a call from your house to hers that night. This is absurd. Go ahead, play cool. I know. You killed her. You're the guy. Indeed, you will go to trial. How can you think that I could do a thing like that? And those were scenes from Presumed Innocent, the 1990 page-to-screen courtroom thriller penned by novelist and screenwriter Scott Turow and starring Harrison Ford as a lawyer-turned-accused defendant, and likewise starring among the screen greats who have since passed away, Puerto Rican actor Raul Julia, along with Brian Dennehy and Paul Winfield. And Turow phones in this week to the show the Chicago-based bestseller novelist discussing his latest work, The Last Trial, a follow-up to Presumed Innocent and Julia's character, Alejandro Stern, now elderly and ill, determined to pursue his last case, cancer drug mail fraud, insider trading, and even murder, says lawyer-turned-writer Tarot of his body of work and with connections to Twelve Angry Men and Perry Mason, Quote, I think that the law as an institution has tremendous impact on American society and to an extent from a historical perspective much more nationalized than when I was a boy. First, an excerpt from The Last Trial read by Robert G. Slade, then Scott Turow. Like a Spartan on his shield, stark and horrifying. A small man he has nonetheless always been a dominating presence in the courtroom. Now he lies here, sadly exposed. Sparse white hairs curl across his breast, and his flesh has the grayish undertone of skim milk. The left side of his chest appears somewhat sunken, where the livid mark of a surgical scar 
follows from just below his nipple all the way to his back. Incongruously, his red, white, and blue necktie, still knotted in his collar, hangs down his naked side. The young woman who screamed and then fled has returned. She is an odd person. You can see that not just because of the inch-long nail driven through her nose as decoration, but also from the slightly angry and indifferent way she deals with people. Move! Move! she shouts, dodging up the aisle. She carries a red plastic case in her right hand, where blood is welling from her knuckles. The latch on the box in the corridor that houses the defibrillator was jammed, and after several desperate tries, the lawyer's granddaughter simply punched in the thin glass. As she passes the front spectator's row, one of the long line of journalists standing there remarks to a colleague beside him, Talk about going out with your boots on. Immediately after delivering the equipment to the doctor, the young woman wheels, pointing her bloody hand at the reporter. Stu, she says, no way he's dying. 1. Opening. November 5th, 2019. Chapter 1. The End. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, says Mr. Alejandro Stern, for nearly sixty years he has offered this greeting to start his defense of the accused, and with the words today, a vapor of melancholy scuttles across his heart. But he is here. We live in the everlasting present, and he knows this much with iron certainty. He has had his turn. This is the end, he says, for me. Without lowering his eyes from the jury, he blindly probes his midsection to fasten the center button on his suit coat, as he has always done after his first few words. No doubt you have been thinking, the defense lawyer is so very old. And you are correct, of course. Standing up to the government when the freedom of a good person like Dr. Kirill Pavko hangs in the balance is not a task for someone of my age. This will be my final time. Behind him, on the bench, Chief Judge Sonia Klonsky utters an unformed sound, as if clearing her throat. Yet, having known Sonny well for thirty years, he understands as clearly as if she had spoken. Were he to say more about his personal situation, the judge will politely cut him off. Yet I could not refuse this case, he adds. Mr. Stern, Judge Klonsky says, perhaps you should turn to the proof? Looking up at her on the carved walnut bench, Stern lets his head droop in a small bow. It is a gesture retained from his boyhood in Argentina, which also left the whisper of an accent that embarrasses him even now whenever he hears recordings of his voice. Just so, Your Honor, he answers, then turns again to the jury. Marta and I are proud to stand beside Dr. Pavko at this crucial moment in what has been a long and honored life. Marta, if you would. Marta Stern rises slowly at the defense table, greeting the jurors with a pleasant smile. As her father sees her, Marta is that unusual person who looks far better in her middle years than she did as a young woman, fit, well-coiffed, and at ease. Stern, by contrast, has been withered by age and disease, but even now he does not need to say she is his daughter. Great. How are you? Great. And welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be welcomed. And where are you calling from? I am in Naples, Florida. Oh, okay. Where we um, have been spending the winters escaping the Midwest. And, of course, we have stayed here longer than anticipated, rather than returning to Chicago. Now, what was the inspiration for you personally, as well as what's going on in the world out there, to pen the last trial? Well, um, 
Sandy Stern, who is the hero, as it were, of the last trial, uh, is now 85 years old. But um, people who've seen the movie of Presumed Innocent um, long ago may remember Sandy Stern as played by Raul Julia. And he's, Sandy Stern, this brilliant criminal defense lawyer, has always been a favorite character of mine. He's made some appearance, often just for a sentence or two, in every novel. Uh, but his, his last big um, role was in a novel called Innocent, which was a sequel to Presumed Innocent. And uh, in that book, Stern, don't ask me why, has um, advanced cancer. And uh, he's suffered terribly from the chemotherapy and the radiation. He's got you know, hair and his clothing, you, can, you know, barely it just hangs on him. And he's got a horrible rash on his face uh, as a you know, side effect of one of the chemotherapies. And, uh, readers who followed Stern uh, over the years in my books uh, started writing to me saying, you know, oh, please say that Sandy Stern isn't going to die. And uh, my instinctive response, of course, was, no, 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 he's not going to die. Um, and, and there it lay um, in my last novel, Testimony, which came out three years ago. Uh, Stern appears in, as a guest at a party and uh, the narrator says he's living in the alternate universe of cancer remission. And I started to think to myself, how is it that, you know, a guy of advanced years uh, is able to survive so long with, uh, you know, what's supposed to be a mortal disease? And I said, well, maybe, maybe he's, you know, encountered one of these many new cancer therapies. Uh, and uh, that's where I started thinking about, um, you know, the medication, which is supposedly a cancer wonder drug called G. Livia, which is at the heart of the last trial. And uh, as since uh, the, the presumption from the beginning was that Stern himself has had his life prolonged by G. Livia, and uh, the, the next sort of creative complication was that the uh, doctor, researcher, uh, Dr. Kirill Pasco, a former Nobel Prize winner in medicine and somebody whom Stern has known for many years, Kirill finds himself uh, indicted for uh, mail fraud, uh, for insider trading, uh, and even for murder uh, because the government says that he won approval of G. Livia uh, without telling them what he knew, which was namely that, yes, it's helpful to many patients, but it also kills a certain number of them after about a year when they develop an acute allergic reaction to the medication. So uh, I, I'm collapsing into, uh, you know, a few minutes of jabbering <laughs> what took, took a year um, of deliberation to arrive at, but, uh, you know, just started from the question of, how can Sandy Stern still be alive? And what was your original inspiration for legal pursuits, both as a career and creatively? And did it have anything to do with drama like Twelve Angry Men or Perry Mason? Well, I watched Perry Mason as a kid, but um, I never really gave any thought to being a lawyer. My, my goal was always to be a novelist. And... Uh, I was a writing fellow out at Stanford and then taught there for a while, and I was blundering into an academic career. And, uh, you know, for people who, whose ambition is to teach or be a scholar, that's a, a, obviously a wonderful calling. But that wasn't my ambition. And I began to think, well, you know, I'm not getting anywhere writing novels. I don't intend to quit, but what am I going to do? Uh, to support myself while I'm trying. And, um, even though people told me um, that it was going to be hard to combine both being a lawyer and being a writer, I just found the law indelibly interesting. Mm. I just loved the questions that were at the heart of it. And, um, yeah, and, I, and I really felt called to the law uh, 
uh, in a way that I didn't feel about any other career. So I went to law school and immediately got a contract to write a book about uh, being a law student. The book is called One L and it's still in print. And I always say, and I and, and I mean it, Prairie, that the great break of my literary career was going to law school. That, that's that's what it was for me. And what do you think accounts for such popular audience fascination with courtroom dramas? I think um, that the law, as an institution, has tremendous impact on American society. And to an extent, if you really stand back and look at this from a historical perspective, um, the law in a country that's much more nationalized than it was when I was a boy uh, 60 years ago, um, the, the law has sort of um, become the one national institution that we all rely on for answers to big questions of value, whether we're talking about abortion or surrogate motherhood or gay marriage. And because it has such impact on everybody's life, people are curious about the law. You know, what is this black box where, you know, which, which produces these answers. And the other thing to say, Prairie, is that the more people see what goes on inside a courtroom, the more they realize it's just naturally and inherently dramatic. Mm. Uh, not at every moment, but uh, what's going on there uh, is, you know, important and life-changing. Okay. Thank you, Scott, for calling in. Thank you, Prairie. I'm really grateful. Thanks for your time. And the last trial is a Macmillan Publishers release. And coming up next on Arts Express, a love letter to all draft dodgers, a reflection, meditation, and critique by political analyst, journalist, multi-talented poet and songwriter, and self-described digital street philosopher, Caitlin Johnstone, in response to a New York Times piece titled Ukraine's draft dodgers face guilt, shame, and reproach, and presented by Tom Foley. A love letter to all draft dodgers. The New York Times is naming and shaming Ukrainian men who've fled the country rather than stay and kill Russians for Washington, because it was illegal for men of military age to leave, and because their countrymen are angry at them and because it's the New York Times. They shamed Vova Cleaver, who said, Violence is not my weapon. They shamed Volodymyr Danuliv, age 50, who said, I can't shoot Russian people. They shamed another Volodymyr, surname withheld, who said, Look at me. I wear glasses. I am 46. I don't look like a classic fighter, some Rambo who can fight Russian troops. And to those men I can only say, I love you. I love you, Vova Cleaver, outed by a trusted friend and made a pariah on Ukrainian social media. I love you, Volodymyr Danuliv, who refuses to shoot Russians because you have Russians in your family. I love you, other Volodymyr, surname withheld, sipping your beer in shame, because you shirked your patriotic duty. Hold your heads high, beautiful draft dodgers, for you are the real heroes of this story. I raise my glass to you tonight. I raise my glass to all draft dodgers, who chose to run and hide rather than kill and be killed for some rich asshole's power agendas who chose the condemnation and scorn of an insane society which praises mass murder and elevates sociopaths, who chose excommunication from the death cult over bloodshed for geostrategic domination and Raytheon profit margins. I hope you live long lives full of laughter and tears, full of love and loss, full of drunken nights that go too late, and surly mornings that start too early, and all the other delicious gooey nectar that life is made of. I hope you experience lots of beauty. I hope you make lots of beauty. I hope you read good books. I hope you dance in supermarkets. I hope you have lots of sex, 
and I hope you find and lose religion. I hope you fall in love often and have at least one excruciating but liberating divorce. I hope you drink deeply from the river of life, because there are many who never got to. You know that better than anyone. I hope you know fear, and I hope you know fearlessness. I hope you set aside your armor so that you can let someone all the way in. I hope you learn to open your chests and love with reckless abandon, and I hope you learn to cry easily as all real men do. Here's to you, O Vova and Voldemirs, who chose to bail out of there rather than pay the ultimate price in a stupid proxy war for U.S. unipolar hegemony, who chose to spend their lives with their eyes sparkling babies and breasts rather than dead-eyed haunted with blood and splattered Russian faces, who chose to live for something rather than to die for nothing. There are no war heroes. There are only war victims. Here's to everyone, ever, who throughout the ages has chosen not to be made one. I raise my glass to your lives and to your hidden yet radiant dignity. Please know that at least one pair of eyes sees your beauty. Oh yeah, and the New York Times. And you can find more of John Stone's work, as always, at Daily Writings about the End of Illusions, Shadow Band Online, no surprise there, at CaitlinJohnstone.com. And now on Arts Express, Bro on the Eurocultural Beat, Arts Express correspondent Professor Dennis Bro with this week's deep dive episode, Mr. Zelensky Goes to Washington. Zelensky, hero or puppet, perhaps a more accurate caricature of Zelensky is what he is in actuality, an actor who has been called upon to play at least four roles, quote-unquote, referencing Netflix, House of Cards, Kiev oligarchs, coal miners, Russian fatalist humor, George Bush, Woody Allen, Churchill, Peter Sellers, and, quote, a long, arduous transformation into Mephisto. This is Bro on the Eurocultural Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Mr. Zelensky Goes to Washington. Vladimir Zelensky has been called many things, depending on which side of the now firmer divide, with the U.S. attempting to recreate the old Iron Curtain, an observer falls. To some, he's a hero, valiant defender of a small nation against a mighty one, David to Putin's Goliath, or a savior, turning back an invasion by sheer willpower. To others, he's a stooge, playing at diplomacy while not actually knowing what he's doing, or worse yet, a puppet with the U.S., NATO, and Ukrainian oligarchs pulling his strings. But perhaps the more accurate characterization of Zelensky is to take seriously what he is in actuality, an actor, one who has been called upon to play at least four roles, servant of the people. Zelensky's series, Servant of the People, now a global sensation running on Netflix and Arte in France, ran for three seasons, 51 episodes, and right from the pilot, catapulted an Alberto Sordi-type everyman, or every schlemiel, into the Ukrainian presidency, based on a diatribe against corruption that one of the students in his high school history class recorded and posted, and then went viral. The show, which premiered in 2015, is a populist fable about how Vasily Petrovich Holoborodko, in his 30s, divorced and living with his parents, boasts that the country would change if he could just rule it for one week, and then gets his wish. The villains on the show are Kiev oligarchs, shown in the opening from the back, or with just their deceiving lips moving in close-up, as high above the city they boast about the mockery of elections, where each controls a different candidate, supposedly opposing each other. 
Paulo Barodko, unifies the country, claiming that a small portion in the extreme east, the separatists, and the west, the nationalists, both supported by the oligarchs, divide the nation by country, language, and birth. Instead, Halobarodko preaches unity since we are all human beings. Illustrated in the last episode by Ukrainian Russians from the Far East with their technical expertise, assisting in saving miners trapped in the Far West, in a way that recalls the George Pabst Weimar film Kameradschaft, or Comradeship, with its German and French working class coming together to heal the wounds of the trenches where they were exiled by their oligarchs. The show is a sort of welcome back Cotter meets House of Cards, where the innocence of the high school teacher in the first rubs up against the cynical power structure of the second. One of the show's funnier sequences has two parliamentarians having sex in an antechamber in one scene, and in the next, violently opposing each other on the legislative floor. The fake antipathy recalls the Clinton-era marriage of Democratic consultant James Carville and Republican and George Bush consultant and Clinton opponent Mary Matlin, whose tryst, instead of suggesting complicity in the nation's rulers in a faux two-party system, as people suggest, instead was marveled at by the media as a model of civility. Another sequence has a temporary female president supposedly worried about the country, but with her anxiety then revealed to be instead about the outfit she's wearing a page torn from the narcissistic, would-be president in Veep. There's a kind of zaniness to this political satire, most evident in the music, mocking the -the always-on-the-go advisors, putting a president through his vacuous paces. The show's dourness contains more than a dollop of Russian fatalist humor, and the series was very popular in Russia. Servant of the People, the reality series. Scarcely had the show finished its run in 2019 when Holobarodko Zelensky was himself elected president, running on a platform torn right from his character on the show, promising peace, prosperity, and unity, portraying himself as a kind of homespun man of the people a la Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, who would wage war against political corruption. He would also be a healer, a Jewish-Russian speaker from the East who promised to reboot failed peace talks with the breakaway provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk and negotiate a ceasefire to end a war that had been destroying the country since 2014. Ukrainians, whose level of distrust of their government reached a world low of 9% by the time of that election, ushered Zelensky Holobarodko into office in a second-round landslide where he beat the standing president Petro Poroshenko, regarded by the electors as a part of the oligarchy, by 73 to 24%. Servant of the oligarchs. Unfortunately, once in office, he himself behaved more like Kevin Spacey's Machiavellian manipulator in House of Cards than Gabe Kaplan's affable teacher in Welcome Back, Cotter. His cleaning up corruption turned out to be primarily to make Ukraine safe for foreign capital, and so he set about attempting to please Western financial institutions above all else. His neoliberal reforms were in fact even too fast for, as he put it, the Europeans, the IMF, the EBRD, which is European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, created to foster market-controlled or oriented economies, and the World Bank, which were, as he says, very happy, but he reported urged him to slow down a little. A key demand of these institutions was land reforms, that is a privatizing and monopolizing of lands long held in common since the Soviet period, and the subject of Ukrainian filmmaker Alexander Dovzhenko's 1930 film, Earth, as well as deregulation of the banking system. The land reform measure was widely opposed with 72% against this attempt to accustom the country to, in Zelensky's words, the normality of capitalism. These neoliberal reforms, which Zelensky happily championed, led to industrial decline, salaries in arrears, rising unemployment, and, and this is before the war with Russia, massive labor migration and depopulation, with experts predicting the country would lose one-fifth of its population by 2050, to the point where, by the time of the Russian invasion, Ukraine was the second poorest country in Europe, behind only its neighbor, Moldova. On top of this, there was a paucity of cases instituted against Zelensky's nominal mandate to clean up corruption. With a promised corruption task force, the Bureau for Economic Security, still not fully operational almost three years after the election. Finally, tensions in Ukraine did not decline but increased as the war in the Donbass dragged on with 14,000 citizens of the two now breakaway republics killed before the Russian invasion as unity 
broke down with Zelensky, the great unifier, refusing to contest a law that mandated Ukrainian state workers only speak Ukrainian, though 40% of the country speaks Russian. A few months after entering office, he had an approval rating of 57%, but by August 2021, that number had dropped to 29, with 69% believing the country was going in the wrong direction. Perhaps Zelensky at this point was simply channeling the Peter Sellers character in being there, Chance the Gardener, who as advisor to the White House becomes Chaucery Gardener. A more sinister interpretation, though, accompanied this drop in popularity as it was revealed that the owner of One Plus One Media, the popular television channel that aired Servant, Igor Kolomowski, lent his personal lawyer to Zelensky to be campaign advisor and contributed to and promoted his candidacy on One Plus One and various other media outlets he owned. Once in office, Zelensky removed the oligarch's opponents, the prosecutor general, the governor of the National Bank of Ukraine, and his own prime minister who tried to regulate the media oligarch's control of a state-owned electricity company. At that point, Zelensky appeared more like the oligarchs in the opening scene of Servant than the crusading teacher who had only the people's interests in mind. All this suggests the serendipity of Servant may instead have been a carefully calculated campaign hatched not in 2019 at the time of the election, but in 2015 as the show debuted to widely popular audiences. Servant of the Empire. Zelensky's world popularity after reaching his absolute nadir in his own country echoes that of a George W. Bush in his before and after 9-11 transformation from academic ne'er-do-well to wartime leader. Perhaps the last role, though, is more ominous. With his popularity declining, Zelensky moved to institute more strict controls on freedom in the country. He sanctioned political rivals and silenced television channels controlled by them, going so far in 2021 as to suggest that those in the Donbass sympathetic to Russia immigrate there. His party has also moved to pass a regressive labor law, curtailing rights on working hours and working conditions, as well as making it easier to dismiss workers without compensation, while even going so far as to cancel the rights of women to not be compelled to do strenuous labor. A previous iteration of the bill, by the way, was supported by the British Foreign Office, no stranger to neoliberal reforms. It should be noted that almost the first act of the Nazi regime in Germany was to outlaw labor unions. While this bill is not that, it is certainly trending in that direction. In addition, just before the war, France and Germany attempted to revive the Minsk Accords, which would have allowed a ceasefire, and Zelensky refused to agree to restart the talks. Zelensky then embarked on his world tour, this time as a kind of zelig, Woody Allen's chameleon, who simply assumes the personality of whatever foreign leader he is around. Zelensky has become all things to all people but especially serving those in the West who want to keep the war going in perpetuity, seeing a chance to achieve a 20-year U.S. goal of affecting regime change in Russia, no matter the cost. Thus, in the U.K., his, we will fight on the shores, echoed Churchill's World War II challenge to the nation in his, we shall fight on the beaches speech. In Germany, he raised the specter of the Cold War division of the country, urging the Chancellor to tear down the new wall being constructed in Europe by the Russians between freedom and bondage. In the U.S., he urged Congress to remember Pearl Harbor when your skies were black with people attacking you and then calling for a no-fly zone, which would almost certainly expand the war and potentially lead to nuclear destruction. Those who think the war was engineered by the U.S. as a trap for Russia might also recall John Tolan's infamy, where he attempts to prove that Pearl Harbor was deliberately manufactured by U.S. policymakers as a way to move the U.S. population to accepting the global conflagration of World War II. Finally, in Israel, he invoked the Holocaust, claiming Ukraine made the choice to save Jews 80 years ago, but there he was quickly rebuked with a charge that parts of the Ukraine had participated in the mass extermination of Jews. Which brings us to Zelensky's last role, one where he moves from man of the people to perhaps now serving not only the U.S. empire, but also as aider and abetter of the Nazi Azov Brigade as it prepares for a last defense of Mariupol and of nationalist parties such as the right sector, with that nomenclature often being a rebranding for a neo-Nazi formation aligned with the military. This new role is more akin to that of the actor in the 1980s film set in Nazi Germany, who serves as a front for the government until he loses his effectiveness and is cast aside. Hallowed Barocco, the servant of the people, may be completing a long, arduous transformation into Mephisto. This is Bro on the Eurocultural Beat. 
Breaking Glass. Dennis Bro. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with our Cancel Culture Uncancelled episode this week, the second in a two part series this month of those Russian pranksters, Vladimir and Alexei, alias Vovan and Lexis, undercover at it again, phoning up in a follow up to UK Defense Secretary Ben Wallace. Lexis impersonates once again Prime Minister Dennis Schmile in a call to British Home Secretary Priti Patel. And yet again, spilling all sorts of state secrets, this time concerning the persecution of Julian Assange, banishing refugees of color to make room for Ukrainians, and regarding any possible UK fear of Ukrainian neo-Nazis, quoting Patel, clearly they are not. Their support is very significant here. It really is. And once again, as well, Arts Express divulges that conversation since disappeared by big tech. Prime Minister, good morning or good afternoon to you. Hello there. Hello, dear Secretary Patel. Um, first of all, thank you for your support of our, our country in the fight against Russian aggression. Uh, President Zelensky and I are very grateful to your country for what you are doing. Well, Prime, Prime Minister, let me, just, let me just thank you, first of all, for making the time to have this conversation. I think it's just so important. It's actually wonderful and very heartwarming to see you um, on screen as well as have this time to hear you and speak with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, dear Secretary. Um, you know, we remember how Margaret Thatcher and uh, Ronald Reagan uh, destroyed Soviet Union. Thanks to you, Ukrainians have grown up and followed the Western path. It, seem, it seems uh, to me that you, yourself, and in your politics, as if Mar Margaret Thatcher is like you are like an iron lady, <laughs> if, if it's possible to compare. So uh, my question is, it is a pity that Interpol did not listen to your, to your call and did not exclude Russia. So do you think we still have an opportunity to put pressure on them? Or would the U.S. be able to put pressure on some other countries? This is my question. Well, I think, first of all, Prime Minister, absolutely. The um, decision, well, actually, it wasn't not just decision, the reaction from Interpol to just put interim measures in, I have to say, is just feeble. It's absolutely feeble. It's very weak. Um, of Interpol, in my view, they should have just gone for a blanket suspension because of the, the barbarians that Russia are, basically, and the way in which they abuse um, Interpol systems. Um, I will be very candid with you. We intend to pursue this, um, particularly with our Five Eyes colleagues and the Americans in particular. Um, and this is, a, this is also a test for America to get leaning into the system and to really make sure that we can, we can have tougher measures against Russia. The other point to note, Prime Minister, is that interestingly enough, um, there are other members of Interpol who feel very strongly, and they're not all EU countries. Kenya is a big ally and a big supporter and a big voice. Um, and in fact, President Rutu um, was, Vice President Rutu was in London last week um, from Kenya, and this is exactly the point that was being made to him, and they are very pro and supportive. We need to work with the United Arab Emirates. Um, General al-Rashi was elected to Interpol, and of course the United Kingdom supported his election. So we, are, we, have, not, we have not finished. 
finished. We have absolutely not finished on this. We really have not. And there have to be intensive efforts, I think, collectively on this. Um, and that is a commitment that I absolutely make to you and to your country, but also making sure that our allies are absolutely are more robust. And I think, Prime Minister, if I may say so, not just on Interpol, but on other issues, you see some of our allies working at a different level compared to the United Kingdom. You'll find that we are out there in a very, very strong and forceful way, and there are others trying to catch up. Yeah, thank you. I think that we can, uh, maybe it would be possible to create a system of countries that would work only at the request of Ukraine. So this would concern our Russian friends, I mean, friends of Putin. Mm -hmm. After all, you will accept all our necessary requests. So we will work with us pretty closely. So I think that we can do that, uh, maybe create that such a system. So it would be very useful for us. Well, Prime Minister, well, I'm very, very happy to, as I've said, I'm committed, I'm absolutely committed to driving this forward, looking at what more we can absolutely do. Um, and I think your, the model that you have just proposed is absolutely vital um, because, again, quite frankly, it is those that stand up for an independent, sovereign, free country um, versus the friends of Putin and the barbarism that he is effectively, the grotesque aggression that he is inflicting upon Ukraine. Yes, I agree. Thanks very much. Um, we are glad that the Home Office is ready to simplify the entry procedure for refugees from Ukraine. Ukraine family program is perfect. How many refugees do you think the UK will, will be able to accept? Uh, what do you think? As of today, as of this morning, we have issued over 4,000 visas for people, for, for Ukrainian nationals to come to the United Kingdom to be reunited with their family. This is uncapped. There are no limits. Our schemes are very generous and they're very open. As of this afternoon, we will be simplifying the processes, the paperwork, the bureaucracy, and biometric checks will be taken in the UK. Um, and Prime Minister, let me just give you a re the reassurance and my personal commitment to yes, making this scheme sure. work. Well, dear Secretary, I've, I hope that uh, the families will not be afraid from our nationalists, as Putin uh, tried to make them fear. Well, well, I think, Prime Minister, you're absolutely right. And if I may, we launched the sponsorship scheme yesterday just for people to express their interest on, on housing Ukrainian nationals. No, I mean uh, people who are nationalists, as uh, Putin uh, tried to fear all the world, that there are a lot of banders, neo-Nazis. I hope that, uh, yeah, I hope that UK citizens are not afraid of them. Clearly they're not. For us, the support, the support is very significant here. It really is. What do, uh, what do you think um, about the transfer of the property of Russian oligarchs to Ukrainians? Your judicial system stands for the protection of the rights of owners. But the Russians, you know that the Russians are in the list, blacklist now. I hope you agree with me and they should be deprived of everything now after what they are doing. Um, well, well, Prime Minister, interestingly, interesting enough, our sanctions legislation um, actually came into law last night. Um, as you know, we have two chambers in our parliament. We have the House of Commons, which is elected, and the upper house. And once legislation goes through the upper house, it then receives royal assent. The upper house sat last night till literally about 3 a.m. this morning to ratify our sanctions legislation, our economic crime bill, which will enable us as a government to do two things, well, many things, but first of all, to clamp down on illicit Russian funds in London, but also in terms of the ability to go after their wealth. And their wealth could be their Ferraris, it could be their properties, it could be all a range of assets through new laws that we have brought in. But I think you, uh, agree, you agree with me that they should be deprived because of their... Uh, well, that, that, is, that is absolutely our policy yeah, approach, right. absolutely through the yeah. sanctions. Re you know, re recently your squatters activists cite the mention of oligarch Deripaska. Uh, we would like to get it for Mr. Zelensky's residence when he comes to your country. I think it should be very interesting. 
Well, this is the protesters. I think were still there last night. So our our metropolitan police in London are busy evicting them. But I think Prime Minister, you know, absolutely. We I hear exactly the case that you are making, and we want we want to turn this around. We want justice for Ukraine and justice for Ukrainians off the back of the ill-gotten proceeds um, that Russian oligarchs have basically been, you know, living a very very fancy and grand life in London. We want to change that. We hope uh, that many Russian journalists and foundations that have uh, collaborated with the Foreign Office will help catch everyone. I know that the Billing Cat uh, uh, also works with you on that issue, and we should not allow people like Assange to make what they are doing. I know that uh, he tried to drink uh, the blood of your country. By the way, we are pleased with the decision of uh, your fair trial. He drank a lot of uh, your blood, so it's very important. And I hope that you will continue to work with uh, such organization like uh, Billing Cat. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, Prime Minister. I mean, our, our approach is very, very clear in terms of, you know, the organizations that we work with actually to be very transparent about what has been taking place um, and to speak truth to power and to stand up with some real facts rather than peddling many of the falsehoods and false information um, in many quarters as well. And of course, in certain cases, such as the Assange case, we have a judicial process that that has to work through in the United Kingdom. And um, when it comes to some of our laws, like extradition, of course, that's in the hands of the courts. You know, yes, I, why I'm asking you, there are many oligarchs in your country, but some may be useful to us too. For example, Mr. Chichwarkin, he can work for Ukraine, help our army financially. And what do you think about Abramovich? I know he has a very strong lobby in England and he can get away from sanctions, especially because of the problems at the Chelsea club. But there are still many Russians' agents influence in the UK. That's why I'm uh, so really uh, yeah. concerned about that. Yeah, and rightly so, Prime Minister. We're, we are very, very, we're highly attuned to this and have actually been for many years. We have been for many, many years. And in fact, my work in this area hasn't just come about because of this crisis. We've been working on foreign agent registration, looking to change our laws for, for some time. And in fact, I'm bringing forward some legislation that was announced last year on, on hostile state activity, which covers Russia in, in a very, very in-depth way but also looks at many of the issues around foreign agent registration, um, permissive activity across our institutions, across the state, across cultural organizations, and all sorts of educational establishments, establishments too. So we are very, very highly attuned to all of this. No, I mean, uh, all of Russians uh, usually support uh, the, uh, what um, Putin doing uh, does now. Exactly. So we need to look at them very seriously. We should restrict them uh, un until they will not criticize them. Well, there is work taking place on much of this, as you know, from across the whole of government, Prime Minister. I mean, um, you'll be speaking to many of my other colleagues as well in government, and we are all working really to put the pressure on Putin, put the pressure on the associated individuals around him. Um, and that is, that is our responsibility. That is our responsibility. And we're making some big changes to our own government, governance and our own laws and ensuring that night and day, we are doing everything that we possibly can to hold these people to account, quite frankly, for, yes, their association with Putin, but also for the actions as to what is taking place right now while dealing with illicit finance and many of the wider um, abuses that have taken place in my country for too long. No, I mean, we have to press them uh, more and more to change the power of Russian government. Now it's uh, pretty dangerous for all Europe and not only for Europe, but also for uh, the UK. And I yeah, know you cancel all COVID restrictions, but the Russians who come to you, you can't let them in, in even students. They all could be uh, KGB or FSB agents. Uh, they need to be checked uh, in a special way, I think, not like other nations. Well, Prime Minister, that's absolutely right. That is absolutely right. And you would, 
expect me to say nothing less on this whole issue. Um, we absolutely have some of the finest security checks. Also working with our agencies, that's effectively the approach that we are taking. And as you will totally appreciate and recognize, Prime Minister, we have stepped them up very, very significantly. Yeah, I agree absolutely. Uh, I mean, you could offer, uh, you, I could, I could offer you a list of questions for Russian, especially. For example, you could ask, um, uh, Crimea belongs to Ukraine or not, or something. Uh, what do you think about Putin? It's all, it's, it also could work on uh, to determine who is a really Putin supporters. Sure. No, well, it's no, it's no surprise. We have some very, very specialist work taking place on this right now, which clearly we can't go into much detail on, but we're doing everything that we possibly can. Let me give you that assurance. Thank you very much. I will let the uh, President know that we had a conversation. He is in a safety place now, like me. But right. anyway, uh, thank you very much that you are doing. It's very important. I would like to say Slava Ukraini. You know what is it? Uh, glory to Ukraine. Yeah. If you say it also will uh, have good uh, mood for us if you say Slava Ukraini. Oh. Well, Slava Ukraine, and we, we were saying this in Parliament last week, Prime yes, Minister, in our uh, Parliament last week yes. as well. And the, so and, let and me the just give you that, that and, heart back. And the second is uh, Anglichanka Gadit. It means uh, England help us. Anglichanka Gadit. Anglichanka Gadit. Yes, Anglichanka. And, and say, and say uh, many uh, thanks to our heroes, Vovan and Lexus who has bombed many uh, Russian airplanes. If you say, I will be very pleased. Vovan and Lexus, incredible heroes, and thanks to them for the work that they have been doing. Thank to you. fight for an independent Ukraine. Prime Minister, please give my, my best wishes as well to President Zelensky. And just to say, finally, please take care. You know where we are. We are absolutely shoulder to shoulder. We stand alongside you in every way. It's been a real privilege to speak to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, too. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself, too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.